Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be a part of your work here at Oak Hill. And I believe, Father, that that is a feeling that's shared by many here. The gratefulness, Father, we have the gratitude to be a part of something so special. Your body, Father, is molded in your image by your spirit. And it expresses itself in so many different ways. And each of us, Father, at different points in our life have experienced those different expressions of the body and of your spirit. Each has its purpose. Each has a way to glorify you. And yet, Father, I am so thankful that this is the way that you have chosen to use me and incorporate me into the body at a place, Father, where every gift is valued, every voice is heard, every face is recognized, where our first concern, Father, is your glory through the proclamation of your word, through the fundamental disciplines of the faith and a reinforcing, Father, of each other in that endeavor to be like Christ. We are not perfect, Father, you know that. We are powerless apart from your spirit. We recognize that. But, Father, we can be thankful in all that we have, and we are. And now, Father, because we love you, your word, and your work in our life, we come in Sunday mornings, as we do other days of the week, with an expectant heart. We look to the word. We look to your spirit to teach us something, Father. Teach us today what you would have us know, whether it's the words that I speak or something entirely different. Let it be your words your message, your truth. And then, Father, as we hear it, give us a heart to do what we hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's turn to chapter 29 of Genesis. We stopped at the end of 28, which makes sense. Jacob has left for Haran. He's on his way to find Isaac's relatives who are still living in this land. He is alone, if you remember, And he is carrying virtually nothing of significance. And as he left the land, if you remember last time we taught, God appeared to him promising to bring him back to this land, to the land of his fathers at some point. That though he was leaving, he wasn't going to be left alone. He would be brought back. The point of that message, as God revealed it through that dream, was to give Jacob a peace about this departure and a confidence about the reality of his return, that God wouldn't leave him forsaken in this other land. So what Jacob lacked in physical baggage as he left, he makes up for in spiritual and emotional baggage, because even though God gave him this revelation, he will still demonstrate through the story we're going to look at a stubborn tendency to trust in his own abilities and to consider his own means of success rather than to rely on what God is at work doing and what he has said in his promises. He, at times, will resort to deception, which is in his nature, we've seen. He likes to scheme and connive his way to what he wants. But when he gets to Haran, this is a great story because he'll meet his match in a man named Laban, Uncle Laban. And so the story of Jacob's time in Haran lasts about three chapters or so. And in the course of this study, we're going to learn a lot about Jacob. That's really the point, as you know. And the point of the story is to see how Jacob deals with the challenges God puts in his path and matures to some degree as a result of them. It's also a bit of a story about Israel, about the people who come from Jacob. It'll tell us a little bit about how Israel itself got started, how Jacob obtains his four wives, how the children come from these four wives, and 
where that leaves the nation of Israel in their earliest days. That's part of the story, but the focus, of course, is Jacob. Let's go to chapter 29, verse 1, picking up there with Jacob's journey. We'll read there. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. Well, we'll stop there. That may be sort of midstream, but there's some things that I want to cover before we move further in the text. The opening verse there of chapter 29 says very plainly, Jacob went on his journey. But in the Hebrew, that phrase is actually much more descriptive. It literally reads, Jacob picked up his feet. That phrase, I think, is similar to the English colloquialism we're familiar with, a spring in his step, because I think that's the real sense of it here. Jacob was encouraged, I think, by what God had just shown him as he left the land in the appearance at the end of chapter 28 in Bethel. And so Jacob leaves the land with a measure of confidence, It's sort of a spring in his step. He needed that spring because he had to walk 450 miles to get to Haran. That's how far this walk required. That's like walking from here in Austin to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know why you'd walk to Tulsa, Oklahoma, but that's the distance that you'd require. And by the way, it's like doing it in the summertime because this is a desert climate. That's roughly the same trip that Abraham's servant took when Abraham dispatched him to Haran to find a bride for his son, Isaac. That's where the servant found Rebekah. And like the servant before him, Jacob first shows up in this new place at a well. Now, in the case of the servant, the well was part of the city's water supply. Here we're in a different context. We're out in a field in the land, we're told, of the sons of the east. Now, this is a reference to that branch of Abraham's family line that remained in the east rather than moving into Canaan. But, of course, we know that any reference to east in the scripture is a warning sign or it's meant to be taken as a warning sign that we are dealing here with men who do not know the Lord. East being a picture in Scripture of the unbelieving world or of sin generally. Now, there's a reason why they're still here, of course, because this side of Abraham's family remained having not been called by God into the promised land. So it's understandable they remain. God called Abraham and only Abraham out of that family. Remember the instructions to Abraham? Leave behind your country and your relatives. So this was by the intent that God would separate Abraham from the rest. But the rest here remained, and they remained as not only where they are, but who they are. Pagan worshipers living in the east. That's who Jacob has now gone back to find. So as he enters the pastures, he knows he is near Haran. There's enough knowledge of the ground and of the places he's been so far for him to know he's approaching Haran. But you have to remember, this is not modern times as we see him today. There's no road signs. He comes to a well, and the well is in a field, and it's literally the local watering hole for the sheep herders who graze their flocks in this area. So there's three flocks, three shepherds, 
who have assembled at this particular well with their sheep and they're just waiting. We're told that they're not watering their sheep as yet because the well is covered by a large stone and they're waiting for this stone to be rolled away. Now, Jacob approaches and he wants to know, first of all, where am I? Am I close to Haran? Am I on the right track? So he inquires about where are you all from? That's another way of saying, where am I? They tell him in verses five and six that they are from Haran, which then prompts him to say, oh, Haran, you wouldn't happen to know Laban, the son of Nahor, would you? And they say, absolutely, we know him. We'll find out later why. And then they happen to say, well, by the way, here comes his daughter now, Rachel. This is almost exactly like the way the encounter of the servant transpired when he did much the same thing, coming into the land and visiting at a well. He showed up, and sure enough, in the same moment he's there, here comes Rebecca. Remember that? Only now the story is Jacob and Rachel. Now, there are some differences between the two stories. Of course, the servant, you may remember, as he got ready to go into this situation, he prayed. He stopped and he said, God, I want you to give me clear direction. I want you to make this journey successful. Jacob, we don't see doing anything like that. And then when they came to this point, when the servant actually reached this point, found out that the woman at the well was Rebecca of all people, his next reaction is to say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for making my search successful. So he began with a prayer and he ended with a thanks specifically to God, knowing that God had orchestrated all these events. Now, Jacob, as we said, he never seems to pray. He certainly doesn't seem to thank the Lord, as we'll see in a moment. He never bothers to do any of these steps. It appears then he is taking his circumstances for granted, overlooking entirely the role of the Lord and what's going on. That's a supposition. But it's based on the fact that we see no overt evidence that these thoughts are running through his mind. And yet, when we read the story, do we not see God's fingerprints all over these circumstances? I mean, think about it. God is in no less control here simply because Jacob didn't have the presence of mind to acknowledge his presence. The only thing that's changed here, God is still in control just as he was before. The timing of these events, everything about them shows God at work. And yet, what's different is the perspective of the beneficiary. In the first case, the servant was fully aware that God was in control and he appealed to God for that uh, blessing. Jacob doesn't seem to have that on his mind and yet God still works his plan. Jacob is unaware of God, but God is not unaware of Jacob. And the loss is entirely Jacob's. Jacob is a useful illustration of the perils of making decisions and working our plans without a solid prayer life, and an attitude of seeking the Lord in all that we do. God is always at work, always, around us, everywhere we go. But if we don't check in with him, we miss that work. It still happens. I'm not saying God stops working because we don't listen to him or because we don't ask him. He's going to get his work done one way or another. But the problem is we're oblivious to the work. And if you don't see him at work, if you're not thinking in that mindset as you go through your everyday life or some task or some need, if you're not mindful of God's presence, of his capacity to work, of his presence in your life, then you don't adapt to it. If you don't adapt to it, you can't work with it. If you can't work with it, you can't glorify him through it. We need to remember our prayers are not for God. It's really easy to get into that mindset. I pray because it's good for God. I pray because... He needs me to pray. He wants me to pray. Well, he does want you to, but it's not for him. 
They are opportunity for us. Blessing for us. Our weekly prayer time here on Tuesday nights, for example, when the church meets here for prayer, that isn't something God needs. That's not a chore. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be those who are called the children of God. You know, Scripture says in Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. John echoes that in the Gospels. John 9.31, a man approached Jesus and said this, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. That man is simply echoing the teaching of Scripture, that God's ear is inclined to those who he calls his children. And he does not hear the prayers of a sinner, for there's no relationship there. Jacob continues to move forward here in this life that he thinks he controls never considering God's plan in that daily life. And you see that example so clearly when you contrast what he does with what the servant did. Did either of them have less success? Did God show less of his handiwork of the moment? No. But one had an attitude and a mindset that recognized God, and the other one apparently does not. Who's losing in that kind of a situation? It's not God, it's Jacob. God has said when Jacob left the land... I will be wherever you go. I will be working to bring you back to the place that I am sending you from. I will not leave you. That's what God told him. And look what God did. He directed him over a 500-mile trip in the desert to exactly the right well, on exactly the right day, at exactly the right hour, at the point when exactly the right person was going to show up. If you think that's luck, you really don't understand God. That's God at work in his life, keeping his word. So as Jacob and the men here are sitting at this well watching Rebecca approach, Jacob has a few extra minutes. Rebecca's apparently still some distance away. So he's just standing there. And he notices something strange. Verse 7. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and, and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with her, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. You remember Jacob? He is an experienced shepherd. That's what he does. That's his job. And we've also noted he's a pretty smart guy. So he recognizes this isn't the way you do this. You've got sheep in the middle of the midday sun just sitting around, not grazing like they should be, and you're waiting to water them. Here's how it would have worked. Normally, the animals would be gathered in safety at night, whether in a pen or if you're still staying out in the field, which they would do for days on end, they just gather them into a, a small fold where they can protect them and watch them at night. Then they just lay down there for the night. They typically would water them first thing in the morning, get them out into the pasture during the day. Now, it's hot during the day. You don't want to do a lot of movement. You don't really want to be working with your sheep. You want to lay down in the shade yourself. So they just take care of themselves grazing where the grass is in the middle of the day. Then as the day comes to an end, you're going to regather your sheep pull them back to a point where you can water them and then bed them down for the night. So that's typically the pattern. So Jacob says, why are you still sitting here now in the middle of the day when you should be feeding your sheep and instead you're doing nothing? 
I mean, you can imagine these guys, they're just laying around. They're like the workers you see on the road crews. I don't know if you've seen this yourself. They have seven guys, two are working, five are watching. They're just sort of hanging around with nothing to do. And the sheep are getting nowhere either. And when Jacob says, well, what are you doing here? They say, we have to wait until all the herds have gathered before we open the well and water the herd. Wells are sealed, typically, by rocks, by stones, large enough to cover the opening. And they're done basically as a protection, both so that people and animals don't fall in and contaminate the water, but also because sandstorms blow over the water. And in some respects, also to just mark it as my well. This is my property. You can't just come and use my water. Now, it's evident by the way the story plays out that it's her group of lambs, of sheep, that they're waiting on. She's the last to gather. So from the sounds of it, they've been waiting probably since the morning, because you get up in the morning with your sheep. And instead of watering them first thing, they came to the well and now they've been waiting. Where's Rachel? That's what's happening right now. Waiting for Rachel to show up. So why do they have to wait? Why didn't the shepherds just move the stone, water their own sheep, put the stone back, go out to the pasture where Rachel can get the water whenever she chooses to come by for the water? Well, perhaps it took the combined strength of the shepherds to move the stone. Could that be it? Well, no, that can't be it because in verse 10, Jacob moves it all by himself. Jacob's not unusually strong. It's not Samson here. He he just moved the stone. In fact, his whole response to them is, why are you sitting here? Get the water and go. So there's nothing about the stone that's stopping them. No, the real reason is Rachel is daddy's daughter and daddy owns the well. This is daddy's water. You wait for daddy's daughter to show up with daddy's sheep before you leave. Why do they all have to be there? Because that's probably the rule. And if you assume that there's something behind that rule, it's probably that Rachel doesn't have the strength to move that stone by herself. The men do, but the woman doesn't. So if the well and the water is Laban's and his daughter is a shepherdess, he wants to make sure perhaps that his daughter is in the company of other shepherds for her protection, or he wants his daughter to have the benefit of their help lifting the rock and getting the water from the well. But whatever it is, They're obliged to stay here and wait for her to show up. In the middle of the midday, she finally makes it there. So she's wasted half of the shepherd's day in not letting their flocks get out to graze in that time. This entire scene is set up for one main reason for us. Besides the obvious, which is that Rachel meets Jacob. In the course of that meeting, all of this other stuff is so that we come away with this picture of a poorly run shepherding operation. Jacob shows up. He's looking at this like the scene from MASH long, long time ago. Only half of you in here probably remember this. But remember when Colonel Potter came onto the show to replace whoever was before him? And he shows up and the place is just a complete wreck. Everyone's laying around doing nothing and the place has just gone to pot. And he shows up and he starts cracking the whip and he gets everybody in shape. It's that kind of a moment. Jacob, the expert, shows up on the scene in a place that needs his expertise. Laban's household is in desperate need of someone to step in and get this thing organized and running properly. If you put it in our context, you can imagine a hundred different examples that would prove the point. Something like a new school principal showing up at the first day and it's 11 or 12 and the classrooms are still locked and the students are lying around playing around and doing nothing in the halls. And the janitor is just sitting in the corner reading and you're like, let's get this act together. Come on. That's what Jacob is seeing. Now, the text doesn't say what Jacob was thinking altogether, but look at his actions. They intimate here a certain mindset. He jumps up, moves the stone, waters the woman's flocks, and that's probably an act of chivalry. He's going to water her flocks for her. But it also suggests, I think, an element of disgust here. Guys, come on. What are you doing? Let's get up. Hey, come on. 
And he jumps into action to set an example that there should be something going on. God's handiwork here is so clear, isn't it? The Lord guides Jacob 450 miles across the desert to meet a family that he's never met before. Never met before. He directs him to exactly the right place at exactly the right time to meet exactly the right woman. But more than that, he makes sure that the family that he's going to meet will not only respect him, but they're going to welcome him because he's perfectly suited to meet their needs. So that not only will they embrace him merely as a relative, they're going to want him to stay there for an extended period of time. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And when the Lord appeared to Jacob, remember what he told Jacob? He says, I will keep you wherever you go. Now, the word keep in Hebrew is shamar. What it literally means is preserve, defend, guard, take care of. But I can't help but see a little double entendre, at least in the English, right? I'm going to keep you there for a little while. But literally, he meant I'm going to ensure your success in all that you go to do. And God is faithful to his promises. Look what he's done to set up Jacob's success. It's like being sent into a place in which they need someone to read and you're the only guy that can read. It's just too easy. You know, the Lord's made a very similar promise to believers today in the New Covenant. He promises to meet our needs, to never leave us nor forsake us, to be with us always, even to the end of the age. It's a very similar promise. What it says is that he is going to meet our needs, that he is going to ensure our success according to his will, according to his purposes. But that does not mean that his provision is going to drop miraculously out of the sky like manna. That's where I think in some cases teachers go off the rails because they take the basis of the promise and move too far from Scripture in explaining the method God will use to accommodate what he says. Now, he might send us manna. He might miraculously provide for us. But more often, he does things in natural ways to meet our needs and to cause our success. That's what he's doing here with Jacob. This is a very natural kind of thing, right? Even Jacob himself will not recognize, first off, that this is the hand of God in his life. He just takes it as everyday circumstance and rolls with it. But when you stand back and look at it, what are the odds? Jacob could not have asked for a better opportunity as he arrives in Haran. He finds the family here with no effort. And they are perfectly prepared to receive him warmly, especially when they learn of his talents, which is about to happen. Now, has Jacob taken note of any of this? No, not yet. Look at verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. There's something a little unusual there at the beginning. Verse 11, a man kissing a woman. That's very unusual in Scripture. In all the Bible, there's only 45 times that a kiss is mentioned from Genesis to Revelation. And only two of those are a man kissing a woman. One is here, of course. One is in the Song of Solomon. 
Now, if you know that book, then I don't know what's more surprising, that there's only one mention of romantic kissing outside the Song of Solomon or that there's only one mention of romantic kissing inside the Song of Solomon. But either way, that's true. Now, given the full context here of this kiss, it's really not a romantic moment. That's not how it's intended to be portrayed, because his kiss here is consistent with the custom of the day to do a greeting with a kiss. Even man to a woman, you might if they're relatives. And that's the case here. So this is one of joy, greeting a long lost relative, success at the task of finding his his family. Oh, I'm so thankful. And he kisses her. He lifts up his voice, it says, and he weeps. But I want you to note, there is no reference to God here in this verse. That is not an oversight on Moses' part. That's intentional because I believe there was no such thought, much less word from Jacob. I want you to consider his response here in contrast to the one that Abraham's servant gave under the same circumstances. We get that out of Genesis 24, where we've already been, of course. But Genesis 24:26, we hear this. Then the servant bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. That was his spontaneous utterance upon discovering that he was looking at Rebecca. Jacob now is thankful That's certainly clear. But in his thankfulness, he's not thinking specifically enough, is he? He lifts his voice. You know, I wonder about that sometimes. You ever notice even unbelievers, they look upward when they're implying a spiritual mindset. I don't know who they're looking at. I don't think they know who they're looking at. Why up then? Why not down? We have this instinctive feeling, don't we? And I don't know if it's just cultural or if it's spiritual. But we know that good things go up, bad things go down. That's true for my 501k. He lifts his voice up. He cries tears of joy, but he doesn't go to the final step. And what's the final step? What's the necessary step? What's the step that makes it all worth something? Acknowledging the Lord in his work. Giving credit to God. That is the only part of being thankful that has any eternal value. I would just offer as a passing thought, we need to guard against this tendency because I think we're all prone to this from time to time, just without even realizing it. In the back of our minds, we know the Lord is at work to bless us. We know that. You've heard it from me. You've heard it from others. You probably already knew it anyway. But in moments when God is at work in our life and things are going our way, big things, small things, whatever they are, do you credit God? Do you go out of your way to actually make that connection? And do we say it or do we think it? Do we say it whether to ourselves or to someone else? Do we actually credit God? You know what I have to catch myself doing sometimes? Saying, thank goodness. Who is goodness? God. Thank God. And it's not just vocabulary. This isn't semantics. This is a recognition that in the work God just did to bless me, I have opportunity to bless the name of God through the witness that my thankfulness provides. So by failing to make that connection... I rob him of the glory. I deny myself the opportunity to bless him or to respond in kind to witness, which is really my task here for the time I have. When I just short circuit that, I've completely defeated the purpose of the blessing that he went out of his way to deliver. So Jacob here tells Rachel, he is the son of her father's sister. And that's another way of saying I'm your cousin. 
I'm your long lost cousin. Now, when Rachel hears this, what she does is obvious. She runs home to dad to tell him the news. She announces Jacob's arrival. And then the news spreads fast because it's apparent Laban, her dad, is not home at the time. He has to learn of the news somehow. Maybe he's out in the field. But when he hears that his sister's boy is in town, he runs into town or into the house to meet Jacob. Now, his willingness to run is important. That goes back to something we taught here out of Luke when we looked at the parable of the prodigal son and the father runs to meet his long lost son. Running culturally was a shameful act for a grown man, an adult male. And so for them willing to do this, it's a way of showing that excitement was so great. It overwhelmed their concern over how it looked, how the world perceived them. And so he is obviously very excited, very honored to have this distant relative join them. This is the Laban, the same guy that negotiated for his sister's marriage with Abraham's servant back from Genesis 24. That happened 97 years ago. So this is now 97 years later, the same Laban now is an old man, but men are still living close to 200 years in this time. Isaac himself will live to 180. Now, of course, the first thing that happens when you have a family reunion is they all get together and they catch up on news. So in verse 13, we're told Jacob relates all these things to Laban. What that means is Jacob told Laban all that had transpired to bring him here into his home, which would have meant the details with Esau. The issue with Rebecca saying, you need to go, and so on. Now, that's told Laban something very interesting, very important. And it gets his head, I think, turning with some thoughts. His response is to acknowledge, first, you are the son of my sister. I'm going to welcome you like a son. Well, what he's saying is, I believe your story. Jacob stays a month, we're told. In that day, if you stayed at someone's home for any length of time, even a month, you don't just spend your days lying around the couch watching History Channel and uh, raiding the fridge and waiting for something good to happen around you. Instead, if you went to visit someone, life went on as normal like it did when you were at your own home. You worked every day of your life in this culture. There's no such thing as vacation. That's why the Sabbath was so valued. It was the day of the week you didn't have to work. But here they're all working. So he's going to be there to work regardless of where he lays his head. And Jacob would have gone to work immediately doing what Jacob knows how to do, which would have been shepherding. So we know as a shepherd, he was put to work in that operation. And as we'll see in coming weeks, it's an incredibly successful marriage between him and Laban. He's going to bring Laban's shepherding operations to a whole new level. And Laban's no dummy. In fact, he's a relatively crafty businessman, we'll find out. He decides this guy is worth keeping around. But remember, Jacob's not here to be the permanent shepherding chief of operations for Laban. He's here for only a time. How is Laban going to keep him here? Well, the story gets interesting when you find out how. Remember God's promises, though? God says, I'm going to bring you back into the land. So despite Laban's conniving, God is not going to allow that to stand. And in the long run, his covenant with Jacob means Jacob gets free and comes home. So here's what we have to think as we come to our end today and think about next several weeks. God is at work to show Jacob who he is to reveal his own sin so that Jacob begins to change as a person. God has blessed him and will continue to bless him and will bring him back to the land. So in some way, God has to work circumstances so that Jacob's sin is exposed. Jacob's problems are laid bare. Jacob is forced to be put into circumstances, trials and tests of one kind or another that will work to refine him into the man he should be. But God's offered to bless and preserve and keep and guard him. How are those two things compatible? 
Isn't blessing simply a matter of all the good things you want keep coming? Well, he can't exactly grow him as a man if he only allows good things to show up on his doorstep. So God has to work those two things out. And in the middle of all that is this Uncle Laban, who proves to be the perfect antagonist to bring about those two outcomes. So we'll watch and learn from those lessons in our coming weeks. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the lessons in your word. Thank you, Father, for the lives of men like Jacob. Their life, Father, is so much more instructive to us, not because they were perfect, far from it, Father, but because they're just like us in so many ways. Can we not take heart, Father, in hearing how you worked through a man who had so many flaws, and yet you steadfastly stood by him because of your promises? And as those in the new covenant, we have even better promises, Father, in the person of Christ. Knowing you will stand by your promises, Father, is all the assurance we need. That we can walk in the light of your word, in the counsel of your spirit, in the assurance of your covenantal promises, and be confident, Father. Let us not take that confidence for granted, withholding thanks and praise to your name, stubbornly refusing to walk in your counsel, failing to serve you in the ways that you've called us to do. Convict us where we fail in those ways, Father, and drive us into a better more pleasing life for you. Let Oak Hill Bible Church perhaps be that place, Father, to help us. I ask, Father, in the weeks to come, you continue to bring us back here, if it be your will, that there be perhaps others you'd bring as well, for we just wish, Father, to give what we have to others. And in all that we do, let us be glorifying and pleasing as we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.